0: Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott, and
1: I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, there's an old spinning wheel where my head is.
0: Uh, could you could you pour me a, a shot of uh, orange juice with a splash of vodka whilst you're right at it, Cam? You don't want me to be your bartender.
2: Actually, I think it's a a, a drop of orange juice with a big splash of vodka.
0: <laughs> the way that device works. You, you guys may need it uh, by the end of this episode, but we'll find out. Um, but before we get to this week's film, I guess it's best to introduce our guest. You just heard him there, but returning triumphantly to the show, it is the, the man himself, the creator of the Spy Command. It is Mr. Bill Koenig. Hello, sir. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. This is uh, this is going to be an interesting uh, episode, I suspect.
0: It's, it's a strange juxtaposition from your last film. That was a very uh, straight and down the line film. That was The Eagle Has Landed. A very good film in its own right, but uh, very different to this week's film.
2: Yes, and um, this week's film actually helped me discover the original source material, which is among my favorites. Um, mm, because okay. we, are going, we are talking about Murderer's Row, the second Matt Helm movie, but this was the first Donald Hamilton Matt Helm novel I read. I checked it out of the public library in Bloomington, Indiana, and in fact, it was the movie tie-in edition because they had a still from the movie on the back cover. That chat classic. I quickly discovered there's a much different tone between the source material and the movies.
0: There certainly is. There certainly is. Well, Bill, before we jump into this week's film, let's catch up a little bit. You run the Spy Command. You oversee what's happening in spy media. Let's just say it that way. Um, a Bond film has come out since you last came on the show. A lot of revelations have taken place. What, what, what's been new with you? You know, it's, it's really been, it's been like a desert, actually. <laughs>
2: it's like, you know, there's not been a whole lot going on the russo brothers had a netflix movie in the summer um you know mission impossible got delayed into 2023 um we keep hearing stuff on the bond front but not very much you know they've been you know with no time to die it's not been a victory lap it's been a victory marathon and um we really just getting kind of tired of it like guys doing anything um <laughs> Now just as we record this there have been some rumors via the Sun uh tabloid in the UK but I'm not sure exactly how to take how seriously to take that mostly because nobody else has gotten out on that limb you know they've they've summarized yeah. the sun and we're talking specifically about what's his name Aaron Taylor Johnson um that's him yeah um but until somebody confirms that somebody else confirms that story i'm going to kind of sit back and uh watch it in a very detached way because the sun's stories have been very lacking in fact i did a post recently about that just how they're lacking and i don't want to go into too much detail but uh there's and it, we'll see we'll see
0: yeah it it's i mean this whole aaron taylor johnson thing just to pick on that for a second it is what it is. I, I'm not too sure how much stock I hold in the Sun newspaper. In fact, I'll go out on a limb and say I hold none in the Sun newspaper. It's basically trash. So yeah, I don't really. <laughs> I mean, if it turns out to be him, I'll eat crow. That's great. But yeah, I I, I don't really uh, hold them in high esteem when it comes to journalistic integrity. No, I mean, Aaron Taylor Johnson's a pretty well known quantity.
1: Uh, You know, obviously kick ass and he's worked in many movies, Tenet, of course, and he's going to be the bullet train bullet train. He's going to be the lead of Craven the Hunter coming up. Um, I don't know how many times have the Broccoli's hired like a legit known movie quantity to lead the franchise? Not much. Pierce Brosnan was a TV guy. Mostly Roger Moore was a TV guy. Mostly that's what they were known for, but they haven't really hired movie stars. Well, you know, Sean Connery was, um, he had acted
2: in a lot of movies, but he certainly wasn't a star. And I suppose you could say Aaron Taylor Johnson kind of is like that. You know, he is about, he is one year older than Connery was when he was cast and when he did Dr. No. Um, you know, he has a lot of experience, but he's not a star. I mean, about Taylor Johnson. And that was true of Connery as well. So in that, there are some superficial patterns similar to Connery's, but you know that's not enough for me to to buy into it. And again, by the time by the time this goes out, maybe we'll know. And but but one thing in particular that struck me weird about Sun, oh, they're going to make an announcement in March. It's like, well, why March? They don't say. <laughs> like, well, and and you know, and and meanwhile, Barbara Broccoli has publicly, repeatedly said you know bond 26 won't be filming for 2 years at least you think the sun might note that but no they don't even mention it so these are the kinds of things that why i'm i'm suspicious again when somebody else goes out on the same limb that the sun's gone out i i may i'll reconsider but for now I'm, I'm i'm on the skeptical side but i mean i could see why i mean somebody on oh, was on uh, twitter it was a still from some movie of him naked sitting on top
1: of a toilet. Well, he's
2: very fit. That's <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's what Scott and I do to promote the podcast. They're asking us to put clothes back on. <laughs> yeah, like, Please,
0: audio only. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I, I suppose then pivoting from one potential James Bond to someone who definitely tries in many ways to be James Bond, Cam, what are we talking about this week? Yeah,
1: Bill mentioned it. We are talking about 1966's Murderer's Row, the follow-up
0: to 1966's The Silencers. We explored the first film in the Matt Helm saga just last year, actually not too long ago. But uh, yeah, we're back for seconds and in the same year. Yeah, they were uh, cranking them out for sure.
2: Well, apparently, uh, my understanding, I I don't want to preempt Cam's... uh, uh, intelligence report but intelligence apparently it wasn't lack thereof (laughs) well apparently the deal was you know the spoof casino royale was supposed to come out for christmas of 66 but through its various permutations and problems ah columbia we need something like uh irving allen can you like (laughs) get murderers row out in time for christmas and they did so that that's why there's uh, two matt helm movies the same year are you saying, Bill, are you
0: saying that Murderer's Row is a Christmas film? I guess I am. <laughs> it's wow. a Christmas
2: release, put it that way.
0: That's about as much Christmas as you'll get in Die Hard, so there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I've got a real Die Hard problem at the moment, I don't know why. But, okay, I think before we get into our initial experiences, let me read you all the letterbox.com synopsis. And if you remember the last time we delved into Matt Helm, it was quite a mouthful. That's right. Murderer's Row. Matt Helm outdoes Matt Helm in his all-new adventure. The handsome top agent Matt dies in a tragic death in his bathtub. The woman mourn about the loss. However, it's just fake for his top-secret mission. He shall find Dr. Solaris, inventor of the helium laser beam, powerful enough to destroy a whole continent. It seems Dr. Solaris has been kidnapped by a criminal organization. The trace leads to the Côte d'Azur. Wow. I mean, it got kind of fancy there by the end. Wow. It did. It sort of improved itself as it went along. It started a bit trashy and then ended up in sort of a mystery novel. I quite like it. Yeah, no kidding. Wow.
1: Well, I'm just curious, before we dive into Murderer's Row, I would just love to know, you know, Bill, your thoughts on the silencers. Because we got been an hour and a half to explain our thoughts on that movie a while back but i'm just curious where you know you stand on that one
2: well it's um you know it's funny i saw the trailer in the theater but i didn't actually see it until it had its tv debut on abc here in the states the world television premiere the silencers and um I discovered later the ABC broadcast was a bit heavily edited, um, but <laughs> no,
0: yeah. it was twelve minutes. <laughs> um, no, it was longer than that. You know all the commercials. <laughs> it was just the silencer singular. There was no problem. yeah,
2: yeah. But uh, you know, I mean, I enjoyed them. I, I you know, I enjoyed. The, I, you know, it, it was funny. It was. The Silencers and Murderer's Row were on ABC and the Ambushers and the Wrecking Crew were on CBS. Hmm. So, uh, you, you know, there, there was a split in terms of which networks showed the films. Um, but I enjoyed them. And like I said earlier, it, it spurred me to find out more about the source material. And, I, and Murderer's Row was the first novel I read. And then in the early seventies there was like this massive reprinting. I don't think I don't know if they they came out with the thirteenth title in the series, The Poisoners. And they reprinted almost all of the titles up until then. They might have skipped one or two, but uh so like I I bought them all and I <laughs> I cobbled them up in like about a week. Um and you know, I I, I think Donald Hamilton is like a really, really gr- good writer. I've de- I've described the the Helm literary books as um a cross between Ian Fleming and Mickey Spillane. You've got that first person narrative like with like with Mike Hammer. And uh but some of the plots are just as fantastic as anything <laughs> Fleming came up with. And I remember in particular I've I've read many of them multiple times. I was rereading The Ambushers a few years ago, and suddenly it just, just came to me. I was coming to the climax of the book. It's like, wait, Matt Holmes having a machete fight with an ex-Nazi while there's a missile in the background that's getting fired up, ready to launch. I said, this is preposterous. This is just as preposterous as anything in Bond. But... That first-person narrative just sucked you in, and you were like, you know. So I mean, again, I I think he's a I I think he was a really good writer. He's obviously no longer with us. He passed away in 2006. Um, but uh, yeah. So it it's I enjoy the movies for what they are, but the movies cause me to discover the books. I over time I've I've had more enjoyment from the books than I have from the movies, but. Yeah.
0: It's interesting that, you know, charting the course between our first guest, AJ Chowdhury, who joined us um, for The Silencers, discovered the books through the first film. And you obviously did as well. It seems to be, uh, especially for those who were sort of watching it around the times, quite the anchor to take you into the books.
2: Yeah. The the original trailer for The Silencers, uh, you can find it on YouTube. They've, you know, it ends with the covers of eight Matt Helm books, you know, Mm -hmm. based on the. Thrillers by Donald Hamilton. So at least in the in the promotion for the silencers, they were promoting Donald Hamilton really quite a bit.
0: I'm sure the Hamilton estate were very thankful for that. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. Well, you
2: know, in 1991, a Hamilton fan wrote the author, and Hamilton wrote back. And, you know, he was... Um, because I, I belong to this Matt Helm page on Facebook. It's devoted to the books. And so I, I contacted the guy. I said, would you mind if I did a post about, about this letter you got from Hamilton all those years ago? And and Hamilton was very um, realistic, shall we say, about how authors are treated by Hollywood. And he was kind of like, well, you know, he, he said it. He said it better than this but essentially the gist of what he said was well the checks cleared and uh well you know um and also it did cause the book sales to go up i mean despite how drastically different the movies were it you know it helped his sales uh he did say i believe there was a postscript where he said however if you want to see a movie where they took one of my books and i liked it better you know go see the uh the big country with uh from nineteen fifty eight with uh, Gregory Peck and uh Burl Ives and so on. Good
0: movie. I uh, I wonder if uh I wonder if sales of the destroyer books went up from Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. They went down. <laughs> <laughs> the publishing house went out of business.
1: <laughs> it
0: spontaneously exploded. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Remo fans. Okay, well, Bill, we got your connection to it. Obviously, you found the books through the films. Cam, I don't imagine you'd seen any of this film at all. No, I hadn't. No, I had
1: seen zero Matt Helm films before we started this journey. And yet you did own all of
0: Anne Margaret's wardrobe from this film.
1: <laughs> of course. <laughs> I'm wearing that shag dress right now.
0: <laughs> or, the, or those uh, bell-bottom pants. <laughs> That's uh, a shag dress has two different meanings, True. I think, Cam. I think I know which one you meant out of the <laughs> <laughs> There's also the matching swimsuit and bindle
1: that I thought was amazing. <laughs> What's a bindle? It's like the thing that like back in the old days you'd see the old timey hobo carries like Yes, that little bag yeah, on on the, the stick with the
0: bag yeah, on yeah. know, on the end of it. It's so weird that you know that. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> no, it's it's actually not weird that you know. That. Like <laughs> that's actually not weird. Okay. Well, um That's kind of set up our our venture into the murderer's row. So I guess all we have to do now is uh, really explore its nooks and crannies. Yeah. Over to you, Cam. Yeah, so this was based on the fifth
1: Donald Hamilton novel. And, Bill, please jump in if there's anything that jumps out to you, because I know you are the expert on this, especially this sort of decade of spy films. But um, the book was published in 1962. And as Bill mentioned, this was a columbia being like can you get this movie out fairly quick so irving allen um put this movie together and it was released 10 months after the first film which wow. is really unheard of like that is real fast tracking um now initially in one of the early reports they announced obviously dean martin was coming back but they also announced that stella stevens would be coming back and then about three months later they announced that um and margaret was cast so I don't know if that was just assumption on the part of the Variety article or what was going on there. But, yeah, I mean, that would have been interesting. There was also uh,
2: Nancy Kovacs, who had had a small role in The Silencers and mm. whose character was killed. She was supposedly coming back to play Miss January. But then she ended up marrying this really rich guy and said, no, thanks. I'll uh... <laughs> And so... They got some other actress to play Miss January.
0: I'm still, I'm still waiting for my rich guy. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I wish I knew all this because I got to meet um, Nancy Kovac uh, a while back at a Star Trek convention. I would have asked her these uh, burning questions.
0: Oh, what does she play in Star Trek? I should probably know.
1: Oh, I can't remember the character's name, but she's in the episode uh, episode Private Little War.
0: Okay. Okay.
2: You know, she was in a, she was in two episodes of The Man from Uncle. She was in the pilot to bewitched as a brunette instead of a blonde. Uh I mean she was all over the sixties and she finally retired from acting in nineteen seventy six, I think it was, in an episode of Canon, a QM production. So um but I mean she was all over the place. She I mean she's just a very familiar face, uh, to Americans.
0: But, Cam, you mentioned about Stella Stevens coming back, which I would have been all for. She was fantastic in the mm. first film. But didn't the end credits, like, they had a post credit scene in the silences, which was a, a, a very much a new thing at the time. But didn't it say that there would be an actress coming back, or actress, Dean Martin would be meeting this person in... It, it said it,
2: Matt Helm meets Lovie Kravitz. Lovie Kravitz was his secretary. Of course he'd be meeting her in murder.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. and that was the same actor that played both, right? Yeah. Yeah. She uh yeah.
2: Beverly Adams, who I believe went on to marry Sidal uh
0: hairdresser, hair beauty Vidal Sassoon. Vidal Sassoon, excuse me, yes. I should know I have almost no hair left. <laughs> <laughs> um okay, that 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 makes sense. So but what happened with that then, Cam? Um with like Stella Stevens?
1: Yeah. Uh, don't know. It just was reported initially and then nothing. So I don't know if plans change. I don't know if it was Um, An assumption on the part of the reporters who are writing the story, I'm unclear. Or maybe the studio just thought, yeah, we could do that. And then when they actually had a script, they realized that was not where the direction was going. So yada, yada. Sure. Um, Now, the script, the first draft, it seems, was written by Oscar Saul, who wrote, Uh, uh, yeah, I want to talk to you about this, Bill.
2: Apparently the first draft was by Richard Levinson and William Link, the creators of
1: Columbo. So this is where I get confused because like, okay, I saw those names too, but it was always attached to the Ambushers. And I looked it up, but it's like, it does pop up. Um, but also I, I looked up on the University of California archive and they have archives for all the scripts that one of the other writers on this movie worked on, Herbert Baker. And they mentioned this one and they credit the original draft to Oscar Saul. So I was very confused. Well, I, I, I don't know how he pronounces the
2: name. Bruce Sivalli, it's his ebook. I because I looked at yeah. looked at it this week uh, before this recording. It, according to him, the first draft was by Levinson Link, then Oscar Saul came in, and then Herbert Baker. But only Herbert Baker gets a get got a credit, and 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 Baker got a backdoor kind of credit in the silencers. It said parodies yeah. by Herbert Baker. It's like you know, it's like I I think today the Writers Guild would would like slap him down pretty hard for trying to sneak something like that in. Um, because the, the WGA is very, uh, you know, it's like we have the final say on movie credits, buddy. And like, don't do that. Um, but Herbert Baker, he, well, I should have looked up his, his resume, but I do know oh, I've got it. Oh, he wrote at least one Martin and Lewis movie.
1: Yeah, um, he
2: wrote uh, Artists and Models. And he also wrote for variety shows. So, like, he was a writer on Danny Kaye's variety show in the 60s. And in 1959, there was this Fred Astaire special that got, like, nine Emmys. And the, and he got a credit that says Special Material by Herbert Baker. Um So, and I think he might have even been a writer on the Flip Wilson show, which is like, you know, it's like, so, so he did movies and he did TV variety shows and, uh, yeah, but for whatever reason, only Baker got a credit in the movie,
1: in, in this movie. Yeah, I I was wondering if with the case with Lincoln Levinson, if they were brought in to write the next Matt Helm. Their work was carried over to Ambushers, and then the Saul script became Murderer's Row. Like I was trying to figure out why their names are so attached to Ambushers, but they may have been brought in to write the second Matt Helm film. Possibly. You know, actually, Levinson Link
2: did have their own spy thing. It was a TV movie, not a theatrical movie, called Istanbul Express um, with uh, Gene Barry, Marianne Mobley, and John Saxon which i remember watching as a kid on tv and about a year or two ago i discovered it on youtube and i watched it uh because i had this and then i you know i lit up when i saw the levinson and link writing credit so i guess they always i guess they always had a hankering to do a something
1: spy relay, and they finally
2: did credit it with that tv movie
1: yeah and like with the case with oscar saul who written on the silencers when he worked on this movie uh, and, Scott, you and I covered him for All Through the Night, which he also wrote. Oh, wow. But it was a case where um, whatever he wrote was pretty much completely rewritten by Herbert Baker to the point where he didn't get a credit. And Herbert Baker, as you know, Bill said, got sole credit. And he had, as Bill also mentioned, come in on the silencers. So he would um, also carry over to the ambushers, which we'll tackle a little bit further down the road. And, uh, yeah, like he... And he wrote also the,
2: he also wrote the lyrics to the title song of the Ambushers.
1: Yes, yes, and he also wrote another spy film called Hammerhead that we'll cover in the future as well. Right, and another Irving Allen production. Mm-hmm. At that, that featured a, a character
2: named Charles Hood. Um, oh. I I saw Hammerhead once. It was it wasn't even on primetime TV. It was like the CBS late <laughs> <Uh-oh>. movie. <laughs> I was really curious, because, again, at the public library, I saw a copy of Hammerhead, and it was a movie tie-in edition. It's like, what? Irving Allen? Herbert Baker? What's this? And and so when I had a chance to see it on late night TV, and it's like,
1: oh, okay, well, that's what it is. So you're not uh, pitching yourself to come back for our Hammerhead uh, extravaganza episode. <laughs> well, let me know. I'll, I'll
2: just but, <laughs> but 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 the trick is trying to find a copy of the movie. I've got I've got the Mad Hell movies
0: on DVD, so that's. Um, that is a genuine constant struggle that we face sometimes. Is we ever that list of films? It's ever growing list of spy films, but we have to just say no to a lot of things because people can't find them. If you can't get them on VOD, how can you expect people to listen to a review when it doesn't exist? Right. Um. But please do continue, Cam.
1: Yeah, and so the director, Henry Levin, was brought in to helm the movie, uh, <laughs> pun intended, gloriously so. Mm. And uh, he got his start as a dialogue director in the 1943 film Appointment in Berlin before moving into just being sole director. Um, his major debut was 1944's Cry of the Werewolf. That sort of Sets the tone for what his career is going to be over the next while. It's a lot of like studio kind of B-movies, thrillers, horror stuff. Um, really interesting director. Probably his
2: most prestigious film might be Journey to the Center of the Earth with James yes. Mason and uh, Pat Boone. Uh, and also, in the middle of the spy craze, he, he knocked out three movies in a very short amount of time. He did this one. He did Kiss the Girls and Make Them Die. And they did yep. the ambushers, and those all appeared within a year, fourteen months. Um, and kiss the girls and make them die. That falls into the, what uh, Scott was talking about, trying to find these things. It's because, like, I got a VHS copy, a bootleg VHS copy. I don't think it's ever had a proper home video <laughs> release. Um, last time I saw it, it was on YouTube and had German titles, but it, you know the soundtrack was in Eng- in English. Uh, Kissing Girls and Make Them Die. I I jokingly refer to it as Moonraker 66 because there are a number
1: (laughs) of remarkable similarities between it and Moonraker, which came out 13 years later. Oh, what about it compared to, um, like, uh, in Like Flint?
2: In particular, one scene where Mike Connors, okay, Moonraker, you have British British male agent, uh, American female agent, in it's yeah. the other way around and kiss the girls and make them die american male agent british female agent and there's one scene where uh he breaks into her place and discovers she's an agent and it plays out remarkably similar to the corresponding scene in moonraker i mean extremely similar and it, that's something for another day if if you ever decide to go there but uh oh we'll uh, go there um uh, but yeah but henry Levin did, you know
1: directed that as well so yeah and i think uh that kiss the girls and make them die it was also a bit of a dr goldfoot 2 situation where there's the american version and the
0: italian version don't do this to me cam Sorry. Is Franco and Chicho going to turn up and eat a sandwich again? (laughs) I hope not. I hope not. Um, Uh.
1: It's notable, though, you know, Bill, you mentioned Journey to the Center of the Earth uh, from 1959, which is an incredibly fun movie. I was lucky enough to see that on the big screen a handful of years ago. There's a local art house Mm. theater that does Sunday morning sort of like family classics, and they'll show stuff from the 50s, 60s, 70s, etc., and they showed Journey to the Center of the Earth. And it was a blast to see. That's one that I think deserves more attention. He also did the 1965 wannabe epic uh, Genghis Khan that I really need to watch. Yeah.
2: Again, he's one of these like journeyman directors that got a lot of work. And and these days, journeyman is has become almost like an insult. But it really mm-hmm. is not an insult. No. It basically... A journeyman can basically... We need someone to direct this movie, and we need to direct it, have it done within a certain time frame. And a journeyman can like handle all sorts of genres and and so forth. And and so when I call him a journeyman director, it's it's for me it's something of a compliment. But uh...
0: I wish I wish that you uh, I wish you hadn't clued in Cam that journeyman director was an insult because I've been calling him that for the last ten years, <laughs> and uh, he he thought it was a real compliment.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's like so true you know you look at like michael Curtiz, you know who directed casablanca but did adventures of robin hood did all of these amazing movies in all different genres and yeah like nowadays you'd be frowned upon because well he doesn't have a specific distinct style and list of obsessions that he focuses on again and again and again uh
2: yeah his his last movie was it was a Western with John Wayne, the Comancheros. Good movie. Uh, And and supposedly, you know, supposedly uh, Kurt Curtis's health was kind of failing at the time. And John Wayne kind of jumped in and did some uncredited directing uh, on that. But yeah, I mean, yeah, he, he, but yeah, a guy like Curtis could handle anything and, you know, and you needed that particularly when he was active in the in the studio system you needed you know you you needed to be versatile and, and and someone like curtis or to a lesser degree levin
1: you know was like that and i want to give henry levin a real shout out for a credit he only had one acting credit to his name but he played a prefect in the planet of the apes show uh from the episode the horse race which is episode nine i believe and I really like that show. I think fans of shows like Star Trek or whatever would really dig the Planet of the Apes TV show. It was very short-lived, but uh, that's a fun episode, and I love that this guy was uh, in ape makeup for an hour of television. Interesting. I didn't know that. So, a couple casting notes I'll mention. Dean Martin at this point, like, this is the Dean Martin craze of the 60s. The Dean Martin show is very popular, so, like, he's really, his stock is very high. Well,
2: I, I was going to say, you know, the Martin and Lewis team broke up in 1956. And when that first happened, people thought Jerry Lewis, he is, you know, he is the brains of the outfit. He is the guy. And Dean Martin, he's just, you know, he may not be, he might not make it. But if anything, it was kind of more the other way around, or at least, you know, Lewis did okay. but, uh, But Dean Martin, you know, he after the breakup he invented the the lush act you know like uh, you know and um and he would go on the tonight show with johnny carson and, and carson would play along and he would say hey dean i know that you know it's just an act when you uh when you drink and uh you know so like dean martin hands him this cup he's been holding and then John Johnny Carson does this exaggerated outtake. Oh, oh, that's real stuff. You know, he did that joke at least twice. I've seen I've seen reruns of the of the show, and but yeah, that was that was part of you know his act, you know, to supplement the singing, and that's how he got on shows, and then eventually got you know got his own show. So um, because in fact, it, and there's even a joke in the middle of this movie that plays on that. You know he's in this contraption, you know, and they put this little miniature bomb on it, and he's going up and down. He says, you know well uh, you know, guy like me drank all his life, ended up like a milkshake, and you
1: know it's like, you know, it's, it's like let, let's just not let's not just break the fourth wall, let's smash it to pieces. <laughs> he's like incredible in these movies in a very like '60s way. Uh, I I like him a lot. As for um, you know Anne Margaret comes into this movie, and she had had a big launch in the early '60s with movies like Bye Bye Birdie, State Fair, Viva Las Vegas. So, like, this is like Anne Margaret at like the cool point. Like, she's a sex symbol, but she's also like incredibly cool to like youth culture out there. And so, it made a lot of sense to bring her over. And this was like a really busy year. She had four movies out in the year of 1966. Uh, Obviously, this one, but Made in Paris, The Swinger and the remake of Stagecoach. So, so.
2: yes. Yes. Yeah. Um that was a big, you know, that's a really good movie. I mean, remakes, you know, a lot of fans say, oh, "Why would you remake something like?" It? But that is a, you know, I I've, I've seen them both. That is a really good movie and she's very good in it. Um that might be sort of the beginning, very beginning of her starting to take on more serious roles. Um but yeah, anyway. Uh for the uninitiated, it's a remake of a 1939 movie that made John Wayne a star. Um, anyway, but uh, it, it's and it's also the last movie with Bing Crosby in it. He's he's the alcoholic doctor uh, who was played by Thomas Mitchell in the original. So uh, anyway, sorry, didn't mean to. No, no. Go no, sideways.
0: No, no. no, I mean she's she's clearly a bundle of energy in this film. So I can totally buy that she had the uh, energy to do four films in one year. Yeah. Oh, yeah, big time. Like, this was the real, like, hot period for her, but she would have a long career.
1: Um, she's still, I think, acting to this day. She's credited um, in something in 2022. Yeah, still going. Yeah. And she's she's fantastic in the movie Carnal Knowledge from the 70s, opposite Jack Nicholson as well.
2: That, I think, is when she really started to come into her own as a serious actress. Um, um, but anyway, yeah, around that period. So... She, Her respect as an actress definitely shot up,
1: um, you know, late 60s into the 70s. And uh, a couple other notes. This was the film debut of Soon Tech O, who played at the very start of this movie Tempura, the Japanese secret agent that is murdered. Uh, He would play Hip in The Man with the Golden Gun, uh, Bond's Contact, in that film and have a long career. He's in the animated Mulan movie. He's in tons and tons of stuff. But this is where it started. He's
2: in eight episodes of Hawaii Five O, including the
1: pilot,
0: right. um,
2: usually as a spy, usually as an enemy spy, but there was one Woe-Fat episode where he was the dupe, but uh, yeah, and
1: uh, I'm trying to think what else he was, he was in a lot of things. Definitely, and then this movie also uh, announces that uh, the musical trio Dino, Desi, and Billy would be appearing in the film, and we get a scene with them at a discotheque. Bill, I believe you know a little bit as to who these uh, these gentlemen are.
2: Dino is Dean Paul Martin, Dean's son. Desi is Desi Arnaz Jr., and I'm sorry, I couldn't tell you who Billy is. Um, but we
1: like you anyway, Billy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's our pal. And,
2: yeah. and, and of course, again, talking about breaking the fourth wall, so there's this discotheque scene, and um, Matt Helm is kind of... He's not forced into dancing. It's just through circumstances. Then, you know, Dean Paul Martin's, now you're swinging dad, dad. (laughs) And then Anne Margaret says, he always, he calls everybody dad. Don't he know?
0: (laughs) Until you pointed this out to me, I didn't get that. And now I completely understand that joke. Thank you both. It's not a case of like a famous
1: musical act showing up. Like say this was like the monkeys or something. You'd be like, oh, of course, I understand who the monkeys are. In this case, this was not the monkeys.
2: They are not up to the level of the monkeys. I'll tell you that right now. But yeah. uh, years ago, I read this biography of Dean uh, of Dean Martin. And and so Dino Desi Billy, in fact, it's the song they sing in the movie. It was like briefly number one or really high, highly ranked. And and Dean's career was kind of like sort of in a slump. I mean, he hadn't had a number one hit in a while singing. And so sort of like Dean Paul was kind of letting dad have it. Then Dean Martin records uh, Everybody Loves Somebody, which goes up to the number one. And so, yeah, kid, yeah, I'll show you that. Um, Dean Paul Martin died in I I believe he was a reserve officer in the Air Force and in 1987 he was flying a jet weather got bad and he crashed into a he the plane crashed and and Dean in real life Dean Martin was never the same after that like I said this is about 1987 and Dino uh, Dean Martin died 95 I'm pretty sure so yeah the, it it absolutely crushed him in real life, but uh, that's what's that's what's going on here. And again, it's breaking the fourth wall and and all that.
1: Very playful scene for sure. Um, yeah, and uh, just in terms of the box office, this movie the numbers are a little tough to track down specific hard numbers for this one, but the silencers numbers were actually easy. Like it made sixteen point three million. This one I've seen credited with seventeen million as having outgrossed. The first one by a little bit, um, and uh, the top three for the year. Number one was the Bible in the beginning. Number yes. two was Ho- <laughs> number two was Hawaii, starring Julie Andrews and Max von Sydow. I need to watch that at some point because I feel like I've mentioned it on the show so many times. I should watch the Bible in the beginning because I've, I've made jokes about that film so many times. Yeah, I've seen it. John Huston's in it. I he may he have is. even directed it, but I know he's. I think he plays Noah. I think a few people directed it. <laughs> Might be one of those, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then number three was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? And uh, the final note I had on this movie was just in regards to the fifth um, unproduced uh, Matt Helm film, The Ravagers, which obviously didn't happen. I'll go into the details of kind of what the story was when we wrap up the franchise and we talk about The Wrecking Crew. Mm-hmm. But there was a note about that movie with this one, which was that Dean Martin refused to you know, come back for the fifth one and so Columbia held up his share of the profits on Murderers Row, as like revenge.
2: Well, um, in the uh, previous episode about the Mad Hell movies, um, it was stated about how Dean Martin was making more money than Sean Connery was, and I remember AJ said he he mentioned that, and then he kind of added if it's true. Well it is true. yeah But and here's why it's true. I I don't think you got into the reason. If you look at the copyright notice, and everyone's going, Bill, why are you talking about copyright notice? Well, <laughs> you find out things if you read the copyright notice. So <laughs> um to get Dean Martin, they had to make him a partner. So the copyright notice is Meadway, M-E-A-D-W-A-Y, Claude. Meadway is Irving Allen. Claude is Dean Martin. So I think he got like 10% of the gross of these movies. So that's why, so even though these movies did, you know, did not make nearly as much money as the Bond movies did, but Dean Martin's getting a whole lot more <laughs> of the take. And so this did not go unnoticed by Sean Connery. So it was shortly after that <laughs> that Connery said, hey, make me a partner. Well, that's right. but yeah. you know, but, but Albert R. Broccoli, he already had one partner he'd rather not be dealing with, and so he was not going to take on a second. And uh, and and I know come- what that feels like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, so 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 that's how Dean made so much money off these these films because they had to like that's how you know that's what it took to
1: get it. So that makes sense. Yeah, because and it also makes sense why uh, I'm guessing he was probably angling for a little more money off a of fifth one. And uh, yeah, I get it.
0: Let's see how the wrecking crew does for financials before we judge, I guess. For sure, for sure. But yeah, that wraps me up for uh, behind the scenes on Murderer's Row. All right. Time to get on board the hovercraft, folks. Fasten your seatbelts (laughs) and remember the no smoking (laughs) sign is lit up. Here we go. Bill, you're our guest and you've ventured back into the world of Matt Helm. What do you think of Murderer's Row?
2: Like I say, it is entertaining for what it is. You know, it's essentially the Dean Martin show turned into a spy movie. And, you know, because it's like, oh, here's Dean with a the song. Uh, There's an old spinning wheel where my head is. And then, uh, oh, and here's Ann-Margaret. going to dance for the next five minutes, you know. And, you know five? <laughs> it's like <laughs> ten, fifty. She's still dancing now. <laughs> it's, it's still going on. Um, you know, it, it's, and again, you know, it's, like I said, Donald Hamilton was very, uh, he, he, he knew what the score was. It's like, you know, the, the, the checks are clearing and my book sales are going up. I'm not going to make a fuss about this. Um, but, and it is interesting, the movie does have more Hamilton bits than you might realize. And uh, I don't want to go too into the weeds, but okay. In the book, the book takes place in and around che- Chesapeake Bay there's a missing scientist he's come up with a device that can track submarines and he has a daughter who who is concerned about him and thinks this one couple is behind it and so in the movie they change it from submarine detection system to helio beam or whatever the hell it is it's kind of the science is a little shaky um Oh, and since it but it has something to do with the sun. So the in the book the uh uh scientist's name was Michaelis, so they changed it to Solaris. Uh the daughter's name was Theodora, or she was known as Teddy, so they changed it to Susie. Um but you know, the but Helm's double alias because his cover is Jim Peters, but if anybody checks very far, you know, it'll come back as Lash Patron, of Chicago mobster.
1: Classic gangster name.
2: Yeah, so that's that's retained in the in the in the movie. Um, now the book is again, it's it's a lot grimmer <laughs> than the going yeah. on in, in the thing because Helm's assignment is there's this fellow agent, a woman agent, who is supposed to infiltrate. By posing as a sort of alcoholic traitor. And he is supposed to beat her up. And she has been, and he's been given a specific, um, this is what you do. Uh, because the idea was like you'd break her arm and then you'd get a cast, but the cast would have weapons in it. Um, but he's in the middle, he's not even halfway through the procedure. And suddenly she dies, like, oh, oops. Um, and so he eventually takes over the mission and it's it's again it's it's you know Hamilton you know it sucks you in with the first person narrative um anyway it's it, it's it it's good it's a good book and uh it's not necessarily my top favorite but uh it's it's pretty good it's like say the first one I
1: read so and like do you enjoy the movie version like does the movie to you hold up in comparison maybe to The Silencers. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, again, it's, it's you know, you're not going in expecting a
2: faithful <laughs> adaptation of Donald Hamilton. In fact, right. in, in this movie, it's probably surprising there's as much Hamilton present as there is. Um, right. But, you know, again, it's like, if you like Dean Martin, you'll like this movie. It's, it's like, you know, Dean had this, you know, certainly his public persona was like this really easygoing thing. Easygoing one, and and you know if you like that, it's pretty easy to get uh, you know drawn into it. Like I said, he made that joke, bringing in his lush act about you know you know ended up like a milkshake after I've been drinking booze all my life. But you know that's it's you know if 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 you like Dean Martin,
0: it, it's it's fine. It's it's an interesting sort of evolution from the first one. I found personally, like in many ways, it doesn't do anything differently. It's almost yeah. like a copy and paste job from the first one. Especially towards the end. Yeah, especially towards the end. Thank you, Cam. I'm glad you picked up on that too. But all the things that worked for me in the first one are all still firing on all cylinders in this one. I think Dean Martin is still a fantastic lead. I could watch him do his the Dean Martin show shtick any day of the week. And uh, what was it, tw- twice on Tuesdays is what they say. Uh, it it, it <laughs> definitely works for me. But uh, I, I don't want to like, critique it too much at this point, but I, I, I just feel like it didn't build anything. If you go and look at what they're trying to frame these around, which is like the Bond films or whatever, they're always trying to up the ante from film to film, it, one way or another, maybe not like action every time, but trying to make the story better or whatever. This is a carbon copy of the first film in all of the best ways and the worst.
2: You know, and, and The Silencers was drawing from two Hamilton books. Yeah, and mm-hmm. whereupon this one's just drawing from one, so I think the silencers had a little bit of an advantage in that regard. Um, there, there, there's a little bit more there. I mean, uh, you guys covered it last time, so I, I won't repeat it. But I mean, you know, what they did, at least with the first three movies, it's like they took the Hamilton books and like broke them down to like the key elements, you know, like A to B to C to D etc., and then they like turned them into more glamorous locales you know so like for example i said this book was you know based in the united states in the movie they turn it into uh, monte carlo um dean did not want to go to monte carlo um well (laughs) well, apparently his mother was 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 seriously ill at the time he did so he didn't want to go so they sent a second unit to get all the exteriors and film the car chases and stuff um So, you know, it's, it's, um, but, you know, I mean, but that's, that's what they did. You know, it's like, you know, Monte Carlo is a lot more glamorous than Chesapeake Bay
0: in the United (laughs)
2: States. So
0: just a little. Sure. I, I, I totally get that. Um, I just, I think like on my side of things, I, I didn't see any growth and please hold your puns back there, folks. I can hear you Uh working overtime on that one. (laughs) uh yeah i i I was expecting to see some difference. I thought they might have learned some lessons from the first one and evolve because I know that there's two more, so there's obviously some potential for future films, so I had assumed something went right with this one. I don't dislike it. I don't like it any more than I liked the first one. but cam, I'm interested to hear what you think i I wonder though if like part of the issue is a a really fast
1: tracked schedule, mm-hmm. so it's like look that worked kind of let's replicate that and you know it's just like maybe the issue of sometimes adaptation they're like pick the elements but frame it in the way we're comfortable with so you kind of got something that was samey maybe a little bit but for me this one i think i liked it a little less than the silencers um i do really enjoy the elements of like the matt helm film world like all of the characters and just kind of like the silliness of it like This movie is incredibly watchable because of Dean Martin just carrying you through this movie in such a casual, low-key way. Mm -hmm. And just the way other characters play off him, I burst out laughing at the end when his boss is like blowing him kisses from a helicopter. Like, (laughs) There's like no like kind of, you know, tightly wound tension to it. It's just this kind of lush character just kind of ambling through this world. And Mm -hmm. so like that stuff I enjoyed, but I felt like there was a big hole here, which the Stella Stevens factor, where I felt like she contributed so greatly to the success of that first movie with so much of her comedic um take on the material and just helping carry that movie through. Whereas I felt like the Anne Margaret character didn't just didn't have as like great a material to play with. Anne Margaret is every bit as, you know, talented or perhaps even more so and could easily do that sort of thing, but it just didn't feel like they were inspired in that sort of way. And so the movie maybe it just doesn't have kind of the comedic focus I felt like the first one did so they relied more on you know the spy plot which some of it was fun and we'll go into stuff like that that I think you know that worked and what didn't but like um, I found the movie relied a little more on action and I didn't think the filmmaking of the action sequences was particularly strong especially when we're talking
0: about like the final chase on the hovercrafts and things like that. So just to drill down into what you just said there Cam I I just want to double check that we're all clear You didn't find any comedy in this film. You took the Anne-Margaret dancing sequence for 10 minutes, completely deadpan series. Like, there was... No, no,
1: no, no. It's like, this one definitely has comedy. Because, like, Dean Martin's funny and there's definitely moments. But, like, you look at how, like, how the first movie is driven by comedy. It's the Mm -hmm. play-by-play of, you know, Stella Stevens and Dean Martin together. Like, that's what is the... It's like the um you know, it happened one night kind of factor that really carries that movie, whereas this one just doesn't have that. Well well keep
2: this under your hats to when you get to the Wrecking Crew because mm. um because Sharon Tate is definitely in Stella Stevens mode. Um yeah. you know, you have the same director as the silencers, Phil Carlson. Um you know, back in uh, well in twenty nineteen, um the Wrecking Crew was featured prominently in tarantino's movie once upon a time in hollywood you have this you have this scene where margot robbie as sharon tate you know goes into the theater to go watch herself in the wrecking crew but the scene but the the, but when she's watching the movie it's the real movie it's 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 not a recreation of the movie so i i saw it the first night it was out the thursday night preview and so like the next night i popped in the wrecking crew and watched it again and um yeah, and 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 my understanding is, and again, you can get into this when you get to the Wrecking Crew, is that Dean Martin wanted to work with uh, Sharon Tate again, but then she was murdered, and and then that was one of the you know, Dean kind of you know, that that's kind of one of the reasons he eventually said no more. I mean, they did do pre-production on the Ravagers, but uh, I I think he was he he really did like working with her. And I've seen some pretty interesting behind-the-scenes photos from that film, where Bruce Lee, who was the his his official title was karate advisor, and he actually and he actually substituted for Dean Martin in one stunt, which I didn't notice that till I saw saw the movie again in 2019. I was watching, I thought, "What? Wait, freeze it!" Like, (laughs) I never noticed that before. Um, But uh, yeah, it it's anyway. Again, I th- I think, uh, well, again, when you get to Wrecking Crew, you might want to compare Sharon Tate to uh, Stella Stevens. They, they both have red hair.
0: Yeah, so does Anne-Margaret, to be fair. and True. To to speak to your point about Anne-Margaret, I, I will agree. I, I think Stella Stevens was stronger, but I think on the terms of checks and balances, I think Carl Morden is a stronger villain than the one we had in the silences so whilst you do lose a little bit of that Stella stevens energy what you gain is much more of a sort of megalomaniacal 60s style bond villain that doesn't have the problematic elements of sun z from the silences
2: right true which is interesting because in the book the lead villain was actually a woman and her husband was like the weaker character um but they, they dispense with that and you know, made Carl Malden, you know, the lead villain. And he is he's he's pretty good. He's he's even doing a little takeoff on Bond villains at the very start when we first see him because, you know, he's in the shadows and all this stuff. And then he, he issues an order and the, the thug says, What? And then finally, you
1: know, Carl Malden comes out from the shadows, kill them. Uh, <laughs> so. Well, I, it definitely has the dynamic between him and Coco. In this mm. movie, that I can totally see being in a slightly different version a husband and wife team.
0: It definitely has that element to it, or also on like the other side of things, like a, a, a cuckold situation. It was mm. like she's in control and he's like a willing participant in the whole scheme of things, but they just weren't willing to go into that really. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: And she was played uh, by a, sp- a Spamala- Pamela Sparv. Spar- Last name was Spar. But I can't remember the first name now. She Camilla. Was, Camilla Spar. She was one of uh, uh, producer-executive Robert, Robert Evans' many
0: ex-wives. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> I, I'm going to call her <laughs> Spam of the Carve, <laughs> just, just for the record. Um, but I guess let's, uh, let's focus down and talk about things that we did enjoy about this film. Uh, Bill, give us something to start us off. A, an element or a scene or a person, anything you enjoyed?
2: Um, you know, basically Dean Martin throughout. It's, it's like, again, if you like Dean Martin, you know, he, he delivers what you're looking for. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, the one week, actually, I find it the weakest part, but again, it's, it's. Through, through having read the books. Um, you know, James Gregory is the boss guy. He actually kind of matches the Hamilton's description of the boss, but he's way too nice. He's far too nice. The Mac, <laughs> Mac of the book would never have blown a kiss to
1: Matt Helm. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. He was a, he was one mean bastard. <laughs> it's like um, when you watch the Flint movies, it took the boss two movies or uh, kind of like one and a half or whatever to become like the real Flint fanboy. Uh, this boss is pretty much a helm fanboy
0: for moment one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't disagree. I, I think Dean Martin is by and far the best thing about this film. Whereas I yeah. think in the silences you could have made an no argument that Stella Stevens may have been the best thing about the film.
1: Yeah, that's how I felt with that one. Um I think like Dean Martin here, there's just like this like I, I don't know of a movie star that has this, this kind of like very like low key like star wattage. Where it's like he just kind of... An energy to him, like a magnetism. He just kind of can also like stroll through a movie like this. And I've seen, you know, reviews at the time or even, you know, more contemporary who are like, Dean Martin is sleepwalking through these movies, but it somehow works. And I kind of get it. It's like he just has this like very, very, very relaxed energy for a lead which you typically would say doesn't really work for a lead because Mm -hmm. you need them to be a little bit propulsive to carry you through the movie but it somehow works like it establishes a tone and everything kind of works into it really well the other characters play off it well the way he deals with villains is interesting it doesn't feel like they're just replicating like the bond formula no it just adds an interesting dynamic to everything
2: for example you know, okay. He picks up his car at the Monte Carlo Airport. He's driving, and he's like, you know, he's checking out the equipment that's in the car. And then there's the what's supposed to be a bottle of booze, and he's opening up the bottle of booze <laughs> over here while he's driving. And then you hear, you know, you hear Max voice, "Put me down." And he's like, non-plus for a second. Then he looks in the bottle, and it's a little tape recorder going. That's right. I figured this would be the quickest way to get you, Simon. And he goes, "What a terrible thing to do! A beautiful bottle of booze." And- <laughs> and of course, you couldn't get away with that
0: today. <laughs> well, he immediately pulls out a hip flask and starts yeah. drinking from that whilst driving. You're like, well, right? this is the 60s, guys. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. And, he, and he says to the flask, don't you say anything to
1: me either. <laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, you can't watch these movies in 2022 and not acknowledge, like, how sexist they are. Oh, yeah. Sure. But, like, the way that Dean Martin plays the scenes, it has this, like, I don't know how to describe it. It doesn't come across as, like, overly creepy, which a lot of movies do of this era. Like, there's this kind of, like, very, like, mild-mannered playfulness to it. It's like a
0: disarming nature to it. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, It's more of, like, this very, like, low-key charm versus, like, this predatory thing, which you see in Bond movies of the time or a lot of movies of this time. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's... It's a lot of fun just watching him walk around and just be in these rooms with these characters. A lot of the time, I feel like he's just ad-libbing through scenes. He's probably not. It's probably very precise language to really get the best out of Dean Martin. Yeah. But it just feels like there's quips a lot of the time. Like when he's in the police station just making jokes about being in the lineup. <laughs> and you just like like... It, it's funny stuff. And it just feels like it's so off the cuff and natural. But I think that's actually the gift of Dean Martin and, and what he has to offer as an actor, that he yeah. feels so natural
2: in these situations.
1: Yep. Yeah. Uh, the lineup, Patty, Maxine, and Laverne. Um, was that a reference to something that I'm not getting?
2: <laughs> the Andrews the Andrew sisters from the 40s. Right. Um, yeah.
1: yeah. Even the way that like he factors into action. like His fist fights are fun to watch because they're interesting. I don't think um, Dean Martin was doing heavy choreography with the fight unit but it's still like kind of interesting to watch and even like there's the bit where he like infiltrates the like uh whatever the plant or whatever and Mm. you just see him on this like conveyor belt and then like flopping off the conveyor belt (laughs) into a pile of dirt and probably a stunt man but it's like you don't see that in a bond movie you don't see a character that just goes like flopping down and rolling down a hill of
0: like you know rock well it's because bond cares about his image whereas i don't think dean martin cares like i don't think matt hill really gives a monkey's what he looks like so he's just there he's just hanging out and getting the job done
2: yeah well he's 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 a handsome looking guy he says he knows he's handsome like he doesn't have to worry about you know getting all gussied up you know he's like yeah he gets a little gets a little dirty like fine he'll take a shower when he gets back to the hotel
0: uh what about you cam something you liked i think for me
1: kind of jumping off the dean martin like what really jumped out to me in this one was just the world of matt helm in this movie whether it's like the gadgets you know things like the um you know the gun with the delay which is incredibly stupid and kind of a kind of a uh replica of the reverse gun from the silencers but like the way they work in these gadgets is fun it doesn't feel like they're just ripping off bond it feels like they're actually having fun with Mm -hmm. them and making them a little more heightened i like the freeze gun stuff which feels like very 1966 batman
0: yeah. Um, I'm sure Mr. Freeze Priest... This whole film has that vibe to it, to be fair. Like, yeah, it, it does. really It's like a product of... Like, if it was made next door to Batman 66, you'd be like, yeah, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. But, like, you look at a movie like... um, um, oh, What was it? Called? The Liquidator. Which yeah. has, like, its really goofy elements. And then a lot of stuff that maybe feels a little slower or not as interesting. The entire world applies here. Where it's like you see him in his apartment with the sliding bed again. You know, they repeat that gag from the previous movie. Um, so that that stuff feels like I know this world, but then you like carry that onwards, and you, when you've got like the villain show up with like the chrome head, who remind uh, reminded me a lot of a like F grade Spider Man villain called Ramrod. But like elements like that um, just make the world feel fun, and it's the sort of thing that like I can understand why there was an appetite for this franchise because it's fun to hang out there, even if you know say for me i'm not finding it paced particularly well towards the back half it's just kind of fun to take in the sights and sounds
2: well and and also speaking of the villain the henchman with the steel head iron head i think he's building the yeah. in the in the titles is like Matt home you know ends up uh grabbing him or was it susie anyway ends up grabbing him with a magnet and
0: mm-hmm. like takes
2: him up it's like wait a minute it's like I've seen this before. 11 years later, that's what Bond does with Jaws. Um, yeah, except with, with his teeth instead of his head, but, you know, same principle.
0: No, it's definitely, I, I, people say that like Bond invents all this stuff. It, it doesn't. <laughs> a, a lot of the roots of Bond are found in other spy films in the 60s and actually previous to the 60s as well. I mean, there's a whole scene where he drives like a hovercraft onto a street. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> this is like Moonraker. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, although I will say they missed a beat uh, by calling him Ironhead. Uh, I wrote down Leadhead. The Leadhead, okay.
1: <laughs> there is actually a Rob Zombie song called Ironhead. And now I am wondering if that is a tribute to that character. Because he does like doing songs about kind of obscure
0: pop culture. Rob Zombie, if you're listening, give us a call. That's right. Uh, for me, I mean, you kind of touched on the bits I like. Uh, the guns are great. Uh, the ice gun made me laugh to no end. And I thought the. Uh, <laughs> uh, back, going back to like the, um, the gun from the first one, the backwards firing gun. First time I saw it, I thought it was the stupidest thing ever. By the end of the film, I'm like, I love this. I want one myself. And then in this one, I thought, a delayed gun? How useless is that? <laughs> and by the end, I'm like, it's brilliant. Brilliant. It's, it could have an army of them. It'd be great. Um, The amount of times and and interesting and clever ways they worked it in to the sort of fight sequences and things like that. I I just thought it was genius stuff Uh, for me in terms of likes. I am going to highlight Anne Margaret. I know she didn't quite work for you as much as Stella Stevens did, Cam. But I just think every time I saw her on screen, she's just a dynamo full of energy. And she's like charging headfirst into this film whatever the story is. Uh, and she's just great to hang out with, along with Dean Martin. She's very easy on the eye, which doesn't hurt as well, to be fair. And yeah, I, I think she was a good accompaniment to Dean in this film. Well, she
1: was someone who just emerged onto the scene like as a fully formed movie star, pretty much. And that that charisma just carries into this movie. It's kind of invaluable. Because um, if you have an underwritten character like this one here... You suddenly cast Anne-Margaret, and it
0: just jumps off
1: the screen in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise. Well,
0: because like, I'm sure the script said, like, dance, like there's no tomorrow. Mm. And she goes, all right, <laughs> let's do it. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah.
2: Well, and, and again, you, there's some things they can't teach you in acting school. And one is, you know, some people, you know, the camera just loves them and just the audience attention goes. I forgot the name of the movie. Cam may have mentioned It, it was the, the last Frank Capra movie. And she has a small role in it, pocket full of miracles. And right. you know, and it's like, you know, it's a small role, but like, you know, anytime she's on screen, your eyes go toward her. And, you know, that was yeah. just, like you said, like a practically a fully formed movie star almost from the very beginning.
1: Have you ever seen the um, State Fair uh, remake she was in?
2: Parts of it on TV.
1: Yeah, like she's a small supporting role in that movie where she... Uh, you know, it's kind of the seductress who works for the state uh, fair who um, kind of comes on to the son of the family. And it's like, again, a small supporting character, but just comes alive in that movie. And it's very clear why she was marked for leading roles shortly after.
0: I I just, before we move on to dislikes, I just wanted to shout out as well. I think Leila Schifrin does a fantastic job, again, with Mm. the score with this one. There's a couple of moments where I feel like they could have used some music. I'm not sure why they didn't. Like, some of the car chases I felt felt a bit, like, empty. Yeah. But when there was music, I think it was fantastic. I feel like the overall package of the
1: Helm films, they understood quicker than, like, the Flints. I love a lot of the elements of the Flint movies. And I do think in Inle- or the original Our Man Flint, I should say, is, like, pretty superior to a lot of the 60s spy films we've seen. But I think as an overall franchise, the Helms feel more confident in knowing exactly what they were right from the step. Yeah,
0: they, they knew the world they existed in and the rules and what worked, which I think is the important thing because it was very much, let's have Dean Martin on the screen at all times. Yeah. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources, whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or, of course, constructing a top-secret volcano lair We're putting out the call for your support. That's right, as you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts
1: Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam,
0: what have we got in our crosshairs this month?
1: Catch up with reviews of Sudden Impact and Desperado. Plus, our commentary on 1984's Cloak and Dagger is out. All hail Jack Flack.
0: And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, let's uh, take a look at dislikes now let's uh put our seats down and look at the <laughs> screen above gents let's go for bill first a dislike you had
2: well i mentioned briefly in passing um james gregory is a good actor but
0: there's there,
2: there's just something that's a little off-putting and again maybe it's because i've read the books um just again mac should not have been blowing a kiss at matt helm uh <laughs> <laughs> at the end there you um, wanted
0: that kiss yourself didn't you bill yeah. i can tell
2: and uh and i could have done without the polka dotted shorts uh get. <laughs> um it's the only way to fly it's the only way to fly yeah um but you know again you 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 take it for the period it was made in so yes it's sexist mm-hmm. and, and so forth but as as a as a television performer as a stage performer nightclub performer he threaded the needle because at the one on one hand he seems to be leering after women but at the same time he kind of lets you know that he's you know married with kids (laughs) right and and with with you know and rather you know and not little kids either you know like dean paul martin's already it's like 20s or whatever in this movie um so it was it was kind of like a wink like kind of like yeah you you know you, you know this is an act right um kind of thing whereupon you know connery seemed more dangerous and uh today there are a lot of people do not like his interpretation of bond and uh so anyway
0: i i totally like i i I get the point for for sure and 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 some of connery's scenes in retrospect which we've dealt with we've covered those films now they're not great and i think a lot of people would if they were remade now make different choices but it's it's hard to sort of do that sort of post-morality thing where you look back on things and judge them by today's standards. So I'm I'm not here to do that particularly. But I will say about this, I think Dean, exactly as you said, Bill, sort of, you know, does a very good job of walking that fine line between being overly creepy with people and charming.
1: There's like a sense he kind of wants, and I mean like the performer, wants everyone to have a good time. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to get that across. And I do like even like a scene where he goes to the discotheque and is suddenly like your dad at, a, at like a club looking completely clueless and just like <laughs> in over his head. I like that he is allowing himself to be seen as kind of like the old hipster dude.
0: Yeah. Isn't it kind of scary that we're all three of us are at an age where we would be going through the same issue in a club right now? That was my entire life was walking to clubs and being like that. <laughs> <laughs> dad
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah um I, I i don't i i don't have necessarily uh i mean a dislike though bill is there something particularly you want to point out as like a dislike
2: no you know what um aside from uh um gregory aside yes aside from from mac not really um you know for one thing The movie is well under two hours so it's like boy you don't you know it's not like watching no time to die and like i gotta go to the bathroom uh you know it's just it does move i mean i suppose there are some individual scenes that could move a little better but it's like you know you, you check in you have a good time um got great title sequence you get you know you get dean martin you get you know and and like you said, you know, Carl Malden, he's a pretty good villain, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So
1: overqualified probably, but yeah.
2: But, you know, but it's probably, you know, but it was probably one of those things where probably a deciding factor in taking the job, whatever they offered him in terms of money. It's like, yeah, I get to work with Dean Martin, have a good time for, you know, 12 weeks or however long the shooting schedule was. So, yeah, yeah, overqualified. That's a good, a good way of putting it.
0: Yeah, I I'll take Carl Malden in this over Carl Malden in Billion Dollar Brain. Okay.
1: Yeah, I feel like that character had maybe a little more intrigue to him. Sure, I I
0: think I just like the wackiness of this one.
2: And also, sure. it's also pretty. You know, and of course, Carl Malden's ultimate undoing comes from the delay gun, where he's yeah. he's like actually putting the barrel next to it, and then Dean's like counting it down eight
0: nine <laughs> blam blam yeah. I, I didn't think it, like it was weird they chose to do the two shots and then it was actually delayed twice I, I know it's like a really finicky thing but like I thought if you pulled the trigger twice really quickly it would go wait ten seconds and then on the next second do the second shot not ten seconds and then ten seconds again but that's a, that's, that's a finicky thing for sure Cam what about you something you disliked I think for me is I think I'm going to have to disagree with Bill
1: on pacing issues for me, whereas I found this one, I had real issues with just how slow it began to feel when it was focusing on some of the more convoluted spy plot stuff and those action scenes that really take over the back half. Um, The silencers had a similar problem, and I definitely, I think, mentioned that as my dislike for the silencers, which was like, you know, the car chase and things like that. The car chase here is the same thing where it feels like it's almost happening in slow motion. Here, it's like... I think it's like that there's more focus on those things. And whereas I don't have that kind of, you know, squabbling chemistry between the two leads carrying me through the movie like I had in the first one, Mm -hmm. much more attention is paid to these things. And it just felt like they really slowed the film down for me. And let's be honest, the plot of this movie is so simple. It's like they kidnap, you know, Solaris, which... (laughs) I can't believe they named the scientist Solaris, (laughs) the guy who has the sunbeam. But, um, you know, like, they kidnap the scientist and they're holding him captive. Uh, Matt Helm has to go free him. Somehow they make that feel very slow and labored to get to the end point.
0: Yeah, I I remember, like, watching it, stopping on point and going, wait, why is everyone doing what they're doing right now? Yeah. what what, is everyone's motivation? But maybe that was just me losing interest. I think
1: the the first half hour or so, I felt like the Karl Malden character was very confusing. And then he
0: like clicks in probably about half an hour in sure i i I agree with you, cam, in the sense of having the same issue as the first one because i I had the same issue with you in that too it's i i I enjoy the moments where it's Matt Helm hanging out, yeah like it it's the same situation the problem I have with Thunderbolt. I like hanging out with James Bond on the island, but as soon as he goes underwater, I'm like, oh man, just." <laughs> pull the plug, brother. This is not worth your time. And and so all of the spy stuff in this is just like Thunderball underwater for me. I'm just not interested in it. I want to see like Dean Martin charming his way through a discotheque or a police office or something like that. Of course, the plot needs to happen because this is a film. Yeah. And so I, I sit there and kind of go through the motions until it ends. But I, I don't think the action's quite up to snuff to keep my interest during those sequences either. I wonder if at least for for me maybe for you
1: the problem is that like the comedy has this incredibly relaxed breezy vibe to it which is not a tone that meshes well with action sure i I, i'd like to think that we could go sort of see beyond that um i i think it actually makes things feel slower though when you shoot the whole movie with that sort of tone and sort of style it makes all the action and espionage feel very slow you know,
2: you know what? I'm going to be really curious when you guys get to The Wrecking Crew.
1: And, uh-oh, and, uh-oh. <laughs> uh
2: with, Well, no, because uh, I think they actually ramped up the action sequences in that movie, because you've got Bruce Lee choreographing the fights. Sure. Right. And, and Dean Martin fights. He does a lot of kicking, which he doesn't do in any of the first three movies. And just that's, that's something to kind of squirrel away for when you, you eventually get to uh, The Wrecking Wait, Crew.
0: Well, you, you'll spill your drink if you kick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, Team Martin won't do that, and I, I will ask a question: Is he the highest functioning alcoholic we've ever seen? Uh, supposedly, supposedly,
2: you know, when he was like doing his drunk act, he was really drinking apple juice.
0: Yeah, supposedly. I'd totally buy it if it wasn't like, I, I, I totally buy it. D. Martin was doing an act, but yeah, yeah. the character of Matt Hill, oh, right, right, yeah, has to be yeah a functioning alcoholic because like he's carries a, a hip Dr- flask. <laughs> And, while he's driving and he, while he's driving and he has an assigned bottle of whiskey with him or whatever it was like it's, yeah. it's government issue right alcohol to right. carry him through a mission i don't think you like see him and even his boss even mcdonald issues him with a drink during yeah. a briefing sequence they are pushing him into alcoholism it's, uh, it's, it's a tough watch. It's really
1: sad, actually. <laughs> he's not as high-functioning as, like, Jackie Chan in Drunken Master 2, but, yeah, he's very, very effective.
2: I just saw one more Donald Hamilton thing that kind of stands yeah. out, and I'll, I'll be yeah. curious what your reaction was. At one point, Dean Martin tells Susie, he says, remember, Susie, nobody dies for nothing. Now, that's a, that's a Hamiltonism, and it goes back to the first-person narrative of the book, where it's, like, essentially, like, you know, I, I apparently killed that. The agent I was just supposed to beat up. But so I. this is why I've got to take over. You know, it's like nobody dies for nothing. We say that in our business. Nobody dies for nothing. It's this moment of seriousness from the book that shows up in the movie. And I'm just curious if you guys noticed it at all.
0: No, it didn't jump out to me. No, I don't think it jumped out to me either, actually. I, I, I just sort of saw it as a tossed off line.
2: Okay. All right. I was just curious.
0: No, it's a fair point, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if more of those uh, Donald Hamilton-isms, as it were, make it into further um, sort of films, because you have to use the source material. There's Fleming lines in Bond films now. Yeah. They're still, they're still quoting back. Uh, I suppose dislikes for me, I'm kind of in the same boat as Cam, the hovercraft perhaps, as Cam. Yeah. It it I, I think it lacks some tension, it lacks some pace. I the bits I like are the bits that don't resolve the plot, so you can't have them all the way through, which is unfortunate. I will also say that whilst it is nice to see perhaps one of the earliest hovercrafts in a spy film, they make no use of the concept.
1: They make more use of it though than which Bill. I need to uh yeah, do you remember what was the Bond film where they had a hovercraft show up, but it's only like for them to like Spy who loved me, isn't it? Die another day. No, no okay, so before that, it's like literally just transporting them to a location. Oh, uh, Diamonds are forever. Is it Diamonds are forever? Yeah,
2: yeah, it it's like Connery uh talks to Moneypenny who's in her uniform at the customs. It's like anything you'd like me bring back from Holland. Diamond in a ring would you sell for a tulip and then he drives off and he drives into, you know, his ca- his little car onto the hovercraft, which is going to take him to okay the okay. Netherlands. So yeah, yeah, it's it's one scene. Yeah,
1: yeah. This movie does more with the hovercraft than Bond
0: did until Die Another Day. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I just I it's a shame because I lamented the lack of a strong villain in the first one. I got a stronger villain in this one, and I don't. I still don't like the finished product. So I feel like I, I'm wondering going forward if. If the, the, the missions and the spy plots, as it were, in these Matt Helm films can keep my interest, or they can learn to find a way of walking the line between hanging out with Matt Helm, which I find fun. Uh yeah. he's an effortlessly cool chapter watch, Dean Martin. Uh, along with these spy plots, I, I I want to see him try and mix because so far in these past two films I've struggled. I yeah I I, I couldn't
1: help but laugh to myself when I was watching the finale of this movie where they're at the plant and it's so just like low energy of characters Mm -hmm. walking around and fooling guards dropping hairpins and machinery and I was like oh my god this is almost the same as the finale of Diamonds Are Forever which I used to always laugh about and be like what is going on in Diamonds Are Forever why is the finale of this movie characters just like just kind of like wandering through a finale of a Bond movie and it's like you watch this movie and you're like, "Oh my god!" Like you can see how much this kind of influenced the Bond franchise. Mm. But I mean, it doesn't it doesn't add a lot in terms of kind of like leaving you on a high by the end of the movie.
0: No, it's not a nice button to end on. I actually would say the giant red throbbing thing from the first one was actually more of a, a visual <laughs> thing to end on. Of course, yeah. Uh, th- this has nothing throbbing about it.
1: No, I mean you've got him in like the shaker. I guess that's maybe the big thing to remember from the finale.
0: Sure, or like the 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 guns. Yeah, I guess the shaker or or the guns. Yeah, yeah, and then the hovercraft, like m- melee. I suppose. Yeah. But hey ho, they don't all have to work at the end. We had bits we enjoyed throughout, but we were talking about comparisons. I think before we start to wrap up and we go to final notes. Man, Austin Powers is all over this film. <laughs> oh yes oh yes you people think and i will shout this to the hilt i will scream it to the mountains yeah it is not austin powers is not a james bond spoof it's a spoof of 60 spy films and a lot of what it does is it takes from things like this from the flint films and you you look at that discotheque scene i'm pretty sure that's like the gia caridi scene with Robin Swallows in Spy- Austin Powers of Spider Shackney. I'm pretty sure he does some other disco tech stuff too in the other ones. Like yeah. that whole like funky psychedelic kind of sixties energy thing is exactly what they're doing in Austin Powers. You never see that in Bond. No, you see it in like uh, in Flint um, mm. also. But yeah, for sure. Uh, and, and like, you know, Bill mentioned it earlier, I was gonna make a big thing about it, but like it is exactly right. Iron That there's a lot of Jaws there, Mm -hmm. the magnet, like his strength, his size is. I mean, I don't know how much of horror is in Jaws, right? Like in terms of the character from the book itself, but I a lot of the imagery and I think what they do with him, and especially the Spy Who Loved Me, is is found in this film. And when you say horror, you mean horror from the book Moonraker, right?
1: No, from the Spy Who Loved Me, the the book, the book, the Spy Who Loved Me. Was horror in the in the books by Who Loved Me? I haven't yes. read that one. Yes, he was.
2: Okay. He he, he has braces. He doesn't have he doesn't have steel teeth, but he does have braces. That was
0: yeah. Uh, but what about you, gents? Any sort of final notes? Anything from you, Bill? A totally minor trivia thing. Uh, I love it. I love trivia.
2: Schifrin's discotech music shows up in another Columbia slash screen gems production, the pilot to the Flying Nun. With, <laughs> which a scene in a discotheque and it's like you know the, the 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 pilot was scored by Dominic Frontieri, but they must have like oh hey we got this leftover we got this shiffering music, let's just stick it in there i i
0: discovered it it's that called the pilot to the flying nun
2: the flying nun starring uh uh sally field a nun who could fly she she was only yep. 90 pounds and her cornet provided the aerodynamics and, you know, she's in Puerto Rico, and the wind blows her, and she flies. <laughs> Ran for three seasons on ABC.
0: I, I wish, I, I, you're definitely not joking, but, like, a part of me wishes that you were. <laughs> I think, though, Scott, you and I saw Harlan
1: Ellison on stage at a Star Trek convention, and I think he worked on The Flying Nun briefly, because he mentioned um, going, because he um, had a thing for Sally Field,
0: which is why he took the job. He didn't put it in quite as innocent terms. That sounds like Harlan Ellison to me. To be fair, I had a very unfortunate meet with him at a Starbucks, but uh, that's well, very- well,
2: not as not as unfortunate as Adrian Samish, who uh, the ABC guy who's uh, got his hip broke getting into an argument with uh, Ellison.
0: Was it about the rights to something? It's usually about that.
2: No, it was. It was. It was um, had to do with the show Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. They're in some conference room and uh Ellison felt Samish was being very disrespectful and lunged at him and there was this giant model of the Seaview view sub that fell on Samish and supposedly broke his his uh hip and um you know this oh this this shows up in you know this shows up in a number of uh, uh Ellison O bits so uh yeah well, I have to look that up um <laughs> I know I'm dangerous and you guys like you know flash the stuff in front of me but <laughs> <laughs>
0: No, uh, uh, Cam, did you have anything? I've got a couple.
1: Yeah, I've got a couple of things I'll mention. Um, We've talked about Bond things that, you know, obviously had origins here. You had the dart cigarette as well, which we would get the dart gun one year later in You Only Live Twice. That one jumped out to me as well. Also, another spy connection. We had the uh, like the silver dollar with
0: the pin in it. Spend the dollar, Bridge of Spies. Spend the dollar. Yes, sir. I had that as one of my notes, so I'm glad we're in sabbatical there. Yeah, um,
1: another moment that made me laugh that we haven't referenced was when the death was faked of Matt Helm, and the boss throws the wreath in the empty pool. That made me laugh so hard. <laughs> Goodbye, I Matt. didn't
0: catch that, actually. Yeah.
1: Okay. It's just like this, like <laughs> eloquent goodbye, and then he just like hurls this wreath. It's like thunk on the floor of like an empty <laughs> bathtub.
2: Em- empty bathtub is burnt out from because yeah. it was ex- it exploded from the helio beam or whatever. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Could, if anyone could figure out how um, Dean Martin and Matt Helm, I should say, knew about this plot and was able to get that woman killed, but not him. Did she die? She shows up at the end. No, she didn't. Oh, she's in the group.
1: No, when all the like the playmates are there, she was I don't standing th- there. I, I don't think so. I think I, no, I think, I, I, I
0: think I, she I th- died. I think. Are you I, sure?
2: I, it was Miss January, and I think he. Mm. I think he must have like thrown her into the helio beam. But of course, it's obscured by. Well, you know, we're shooting from the back of the of the bed. I don't know.
0: I I can kind of I can kind of solve it a little bit because there's a video on YouTube, a behind the scenes video for this film introducing the sleigh girls. And there's 12 of them this time because of the 12 months of the year. Yeah. And Miss January is one of those sleigh girls. So if she is in the scene at the end where the sleigh girls betray him, I totally get it. But I think she's supposed to be dead. It was very confusing for me. <laughs> We're all a bit confused. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, have, I think we've all had our uh, uh, orange juice in air yeah. quotes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, Cam, you used my spend the dollar uh, trivia note. The only other thing I was going to bring up was that there are some agents that are assassinated before Matt Helm, and they're international agents. So there's a British agent named Ames. A fairly British name. Probably James, right? Like they were just taking the A off, or the, the J off Ames? No, I mean,
2: you, you, off Ames. you know what? That was actually a codename of uh, one of... Uh... Matt Helms. In the book, it was a code oh, name okay. of one of Matt Helms' fellow agents. Okay, fine. Who had who had turned up dead investigating this situation? So.
0: Oh, okay, okay. So take it from that. I don't mind that. That that makes sense. French, Felipe. Yes. Not so much a French name. Japanese tempura. Right. Mm. They couldn't. They couldn't go a film without making some sort of uh, remark, could they? No. No. No uh well but i'll ask because there was not there wasn't a, there was an american agent which turned out to be matt helm or uh, or what, what was his uh, lash patron <laughs> uh, great name by the way but as we have a canadian and an american in the room what would be the uh, canadian and american sort of agent names
2: well you know his code name is eric and it does say that on the photo yeah. and, er, and oh, eric, does it? Eric? eric yes because and that was his code name in the books which oh, okay. they never explain why it was picked as his codename. I assume it was because Matt Helm in the books had a Scandinavian uh, ancestry, Sweden, to be precise, same as Donald Hamilton. Um, so, yeah, so it's, in that photo, it, of course, it's it's easy to miss the reference to Eric, but, uh, you know, it's it's the Matt Helm picture. It's taken from behind, and he's kissing a, woman and he's holding up a glass and on the photo it says note distinguishing characteristic
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. with the glass yeah I remember that I remember the glass okay so we've got our American one already it's Eric I totally get the connection not very American but Cam you're on the spot now what's the Canadian agent's name I don't know that we have like naming conventions or that are really that
1: different at all from like an American naming convention so to make it like ultra Canadian I guess Name a moose. <laughs> Ooh, with like an umlat
0: on the O's or something. I mean, if you want to, I suppose, but that wouldn't be very Canadian, I don't think. <laughs> no, I suppose it wouldn't actually. No. Well, Eric is somehow Scandinavian and American, so I guess I was trying to—I was trying to add some sort of uh, some sort of influence there. But okay, yeah, moose. Actually, it's a, it's a pretty solid nickname. Yeah. So there we go. Also, Scott,
1: I have a um a GIF assignment for you. Oh, which is the character of Furnace
0: running and jumping out the window uh, when he is revealed as a mole. I forgot to note that down, but I think I have a new contender for the best exit from the scene. It was originally Paul Newman in the Macintosh Man, which we have a GIF from and we have used online several times. I will now create the GIF for uh, the Furnace going out. That's right. Well, guys, it's a wise son who knows his own father and an even wiser agent who knows the knock list. So it's time to ask the ultimate question. Bill, it's your second time in the hot seat. The question goes to you first. Is Murderer's Row making the knock list? Yes or no? I'm going to say yes,
2: uh, because I have the feeling I might be the only one to vote for it. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) Own it, own it. So I'm going to own it. Yeah, I'll say yes. It's like, you know, whatever weaknesses the film has are um made up for by
1: by Dino. So
0: That's fair enough. That's fair enough. Cam, your up is all still to play for.
1: Yeah, it's a no for me. Um I, I found this one breezy and enjoyable, but it just didn't connect with me the way the silencers did. I think that's the superior of the helms so
0: far. So yeah, it's a no for me. It didn't quite penetrate your iron head. <laughs> Nothing can. <laughs> <laughs> i've
1: tried i know what i've it's tried very frustrating for everyone around me i apologize yeah yeah uh
0: well i i, I think uh bill telegraphed it a little bit and i think our uh, last hour and a half telegraphed it too much as i've enjoyed going back to the year 1966 <laughs> uh i um, i i think i enjoyed my initial entry more than I did this one. There's a lot I enjoy about the film. I think Anne Margaret's fantastic. Dean Martin is always a treat to watch, and Carl Morden is a great villain. But somehow, the elements don't come together very well towards the end, and that last sort of 45 minutes, half an hour, the last act, basically, is just a slog to sit through for me. Uh, it has that real, like, Goldfoot ending problem as well, where it's just protracted sequences of, yeah, you know, uh, okay, sure, I guess we're going to do this.
2: Well, also with the silencers, remember you know they were picking and choosing from two Hamilton books, which yeah, I think yeah. helps. I think I think there's a little more. I mean, I voted yes on the knocklist, but if but that's but if you ask me which do I prefer, the silencers or this, I would say I prefer the silencers more. But I'll still okay. vote yes for the knocklist. I'm I'm happy to be outvoted.
0: No, no. Now, it's been an adventure as it was, but, you know, it sounds like there is still one, yes, but there is two no's. And as such, Murderer's Row is not making the Noclist, and the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Now, Bill, I said I had a question for you. And you kind of answered it just now by saying you prefer the silencers out of the two. But looking forward and knowing the franchise as a whole, what is your favorite of the four? I'd go with the silencers. There are some issues
2: with the, uh, the Ambushers, the next one up, although it does have a femme fatale played by Senta Berger, who is like one of the sirens of the, of the 60s spy craze, um, and her character is actually based on a femme fatale from Hamilton's books, but they don't call her that. The, the character's name was Vadya. Um, so I think they dipped a bit with the Ambushers compared to this, but I think they bounced back with the Wrecking Crew. They went back to the original director Phil Carlson, and I think Sharon Tate's great. And um, and I think having Bruce Lee, you know, doing the fight scenes, kind of gave gave you know the action sequences more energy.
0: Uh, you're giving me you're giving me hope for the future, Matt Helm films. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with imaginary guns. Hmm in future uh future films but uh bill it's it's been an absolute pleasure to have you back on the show i'm glad we didn't have donald sutherland doing a terrible irish accent this time for you to (laughs) suffer through uh but yeah i i hope you've had a nice time revisiting the matt helm films for us we've had a blast having you on um but if people want to hear more from you obviously there'll be links in the show notes below but where can people find you online um
2: just look at uh, look for the spy command. The URL is hmssweblog.wordpress.com. I also have a uh, Man from Uncle episode guide if you want to take a deep dive into into that. Which um, we will be. Yeah, because uh, so I have a separate. You know, it's a separate site. That was actually my first site, the Man from mm. Uncle, which I occasionally update.
0: Yeah, well, we plan on actually tackling the sort of film versions of the Uncle. Yeah. episodes? Because I know we stick to films here, but and I know they're sort of re-edited episodes, but they, they did get small releases, so well, well, I'll take not, it.
2: Well, not so small of the early ones. Um, uh, to Trap a Spy, the first one actually has substantial amount of added footage from the pilot. Uh, but they were very thrifty. They then took the added footage, which had Luciana Pluzzi in it, and then put it in an episode writing a whole new story around.
0: <laughs> but um, genius. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? You yeah. really would.
2: Yeah, yeah. But you know, because there are some people who think, oh, she did Uncle after Thunderball. No, she did Uncle first. Absolutely. I've I've seen I've seen that written in books, and I contacted one author. I said, no.
0: Well, it's it's that and Muscle Beach Party that really launched her career. Yeah, there you go. Which also had a shag dress uh dancing sequence. Well, I know what Cam's wearing tonight. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Well, Bill, again, thank you for coming back on the show. It's been a pleasure having you here, and we will see you again soon.
2: Thanks for having me. I en- I had a big uh, big kick out of it. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, there you go, folks. That was the second Matt Helm film, Murderer's Row. It's been nice to hang out with old Dino once again. Uh, he never fails to thrill me with his bedroom antics. <laughs> uh, but, Cam, the question goes to you. What have we got next week? Yes, we
1: are tackling the 2003 2003-
0: espionage thriller The Recruit, starring Colin Farrell and Al Pacino. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. Well, we have another great guest joining us, and we have a very special interview for everyone next week as well. We're actually speaking with the director of the film, Mr. Roger Donaldson, so watch out for that. Um, if you enjoyed what you heard on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, and do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media, at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, to to Matt Matt Helm. Helm!